This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Today, Paris isn't the only place where a cathedral of Notre Dame is in ruins and awaiting rebuilding. There's another Notre Dame in Haiti, destroyed in the earthquake of 2010. Amy Willens has been thinking about that and about reparations for Haiti from France. But first, Bill McKibben. Trump Watch starts right now. What can we do to reduce the speed of climate change? Bill McKibben was one of the first people to warn of the dangers of global warming 30 years ago with his book, The End of Nature. After that, he founded the environmental organization 350.org, and then he wrote 15 books and hundreds of articles and essays, many of them for The New Yorker, some for The Nation. He's also been teaching at Middlebury College in Vermont, and now he has a new book out. It's called Falter, Has the Human Game Begun to Play Itself Out? We reached him today in Washington, D.C. Bill McKibben, welcome back. Well, it's good to be with you as always. And not only am I in Washington, D.C., but in keeping with the spirit of the (laughs) week, the publisher has me staying at the Watergate Hotel. So I, I feel as if I'm completely in tune with the times and everything you're talking about. <laughs> I, that's a wonderful, wonderful thing. Um, your, your book, your, your new book, Falter, doesn't open with the big picture of global warming. It doesn't open with rising sea levels and species extinction and impending disaster. Instead, you start with roofing materials. Consider <laughs> the asphalt shingle, you say. Wow. So uh, what do we learn if we start by considering the asphalt shingle? Well, you know, the point that I was trying to make in those first few pages is what a complicated, diverse, complex, and in many ways remarkable game it is that humans have figured out how to play, that all the things we're doing are uh, 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 quite remarkable. Um and quite vulnerable to disruption. Uh, You know, you could write about the things that really matter about sex and art and cooking and Instagram and uh, love and things, but, uh, you know, at least until I got warmed up, I still felt like roofs were a good place to start because they're the most mundane thing in the world, but they illustrate dramatically the million different steps and uh, uh, you know, uh, that you have to go through to do something even as, as mundane as put a roof on your house. And I, I think we underappreciate the vulnerability of the world that we have built. Um, I started sensing this 30, 30 years ago this year that I wrote The End of Nature, which was the first book about climate change. And at the time, it was almost impossible to get anyone to focus on the fact that the world's physical stability should not be taken for granted. Thirty years have passed, and that's, I'm afraid, now abundantly clear as we endure record storms, record floods, record fire, forest fires, record everything. Part of this book is about that, and part of it is about the new technologies that are now on the horizon that seem to me to level some pretty serious threats, too. The two that I really focus on uh, in in the third part of the book are 
human genetic engineering and very advanced forms of artificial intelligence, both which I think have a have some chance of uh, leeching the meaning out of or or ending this uh, graceful uh, uh, dance that we call human civilization. Well, I want to stick with the asphalt shingle for one minute more because mm. the asphalt in the asphalt shingle has to come from someplace, and the asphalt could be coming from the Alberta tar sands. Have you been to the Alberta tar sands? What's, what's it like up I there? I have. I describe them in the book. Um, describe my experience there. It's the single ugliest scar probably on the face of the whole earth. Um, there's admittedly many places that vie for that, but I don't know if any place has quite managed it on the scale of the tar sands. No place that I've ever seen, and I've seen a lot. Um, you can see it without traveling there. Go look on Google Earth uh, in the area around Fort McMurray in the northern part of Alberta. And it just a desolation that stretches literally forever. Um, you know, um, not only is it foreboding looking, sort of Mordor-like, huge uh, pool. The biggest dams on Earth hold back the tailing ponds from the tar sands mining. Uh, not only does it look horrible, it sounds horrible the whole time you're there. Uh, because if a bird ever landed on those tailing ponds, it would die. There are cannons firing around the clock to try and scare them away wow. uh, every few seconds. So it, you have the very strong sense that you're in a war zone and that nature is losing the war decisively. <laughs> well, your new book, Falter, of course, says things are looking pretty bad for humans right now. But of course, there's an opposing school of thought, which you can find in a dozen books and a hundred TED, TED Talks, that things are getting better. The whole world is getting better. There's less infant mortality today. Uh, people are living longer. More people are literate than have ever been liter literate before in the history of the world. Uh, of the 55 million people who died around the world in 2012, only 120,000 of them died in wars. This, of course, is the kind of view we associate with the Harvard psychologist Steven Pinker. He says... Uh, you know, people should be happy about everything that's happened that's so good. He says people like uh, you and I guess me just seem to, quote, bitch, moan, whine, carp, and kvetch. Steven Pinker is optimistic about our future, he says, because, and I'm going to quote now, so far humanity has made a lot of progress solving what seemed like intractable problems, close quote. What do you say to Steven Pinker? Well, yes. I mean, I, I engage with him a little bit in the book. That's where those quotes come from. And it's it's not that he's completely wrong. Um, we actually have made enormous progress on certain things over the last 30 or 40 years. Um, and that makes it all the more tragic that we're now seeing that, pro that progress begin to disappear in the wake of very rapid physical deterioration. I mean, in fact... Um, after several years, several maybe more than a decade of steady decline, the number of hungry people on Earth went up last year because of climate change and associated natural catastrophes. After a decade of fairly steady decline, the uh, incidence of child labor went up again last year because of climate change and other shocks like it that uh, inevitably end up with 
impoverished families putting kids to work. Um, and this is, of course, if we keep on current trends, is only going to get worse, much worse. Uh, you know, so far, look what happened when, say, two million migrants left Syria in the as a result of the civil war there, a civil war that, by the way, was triggered at least in part by the least worst drought in the history of what we once called the Fertile Crescent. Um, um, two million migrants leaving was enough to discombobulate the politics of, of Western Europe, just as uh, a smaller number of migrants leaving the drought-stricken highlands of Honduras and Guatemala have been enough to help discombobulate the politics of our country. Now, figure that the UN's low prediction for climate migrants by mid-century is 200 million, and their high prediction is a billion. So ask yourself how much development, how much progress, how much anything we're going to be getting in a world like that. So we've said that uh, you wrote the first book on pretty much the same topic 30 years ago. That was The End of Mm -hmm. Nature. I guess yes. this book could have been called I Told You So, but uh, <laughs> you decided not to take that course. So it, it is striking that for 30 years we knew that climate change was coming, and a lot of people will tell you we did nothing. I'd like to look a little more closely at the we in that sentence. There's there's you and me, and then there's the people who ran Exxon. Yeah, uh, look, the, the, uh, if, if you'd asked me 30 years ago, uh, one of the things I would not have expected was how slow we would be to react as civilizations. And for a while, that really perplexed me. It's come much clearer into focus in recent years. You know, as you know, great investigative reporting at places like the LA Times and the Pulitzer Prize winning website Inside Climate News and Columbia Journalism School revealed over the last few years that the fossil fuel industry knew everything there was to know about climate change and knew it back in the 1980s, and that they believed what their scientists were telling them. I mean, Exxon started building all its drilling rigs to compensate for the rise in sea level it knew was coming. But, of course, the thing they didn't do was tell any of the rest of us. Just the opposite, uh, they spent billions of dollars building the architecture of deceit and denial and disinformation that has spread with relentless efficiency the lie that science was unsure about climate change. And you can measure the results of that lie by the fact that the man in the White House right now believes that climate change is a hoax manufactured by the Chinese, Mm. a a, a view so delusional that, you know, if someone started muttering it to you on a seated on a public bus, you'd get up and change seats, (laughs) you know. Um, so that's where we are. I mean, that's how we've managed to wait. We've had a 30-year completely phony debate about whether global warming was real, a debate that both sides knew the answer to when it began. It's just one of them was content to lie about it in an effort to preserve its business model. Well, let's talk about what is to be done now to slow the pace of climate change. I know that uh, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, starting April 22nd, Harvard Heat Week is coming up. The goal of Harvard Heat Week is to put the heat on Harvard to divest from fossil fuels. Let's talk about Harvard uh, Heat Week and uh, the divestment movement. 
Right. Well, let's talk about the large climate landscape of which that's a one part. We're in a climate moment now. There's no question, and you can see it coming from all directions, whether it's the Extinction Rebellion that uh, brought traffic to a crawl in London uh, in recent days, whether it's the millions of school kids who are walking out of school following the lead of Greta Thunberg in Sweden, whether it's the young people pushing the Green New Deal here in this country with increasing success, uh, whether it's the divestment movement now sort of cresting, uh, we've reached the point where $8 trillion worth of endowments and portfolios uh, have divested in part or in whole from coal and oil and gas, and and to the point where it's really putting the hurt on the industry. There was a big story in Politico a couple of weeks ago about the heads of all the coal companies saying they could no longer raise capital. Uh, they just were not investment funds that were willing to give them money because they divested. And that's, you know, one more powerful part of this. It would be, of course, good if Harvard joined in, belated though they would be at this point, um, but it'll be good to be just raising the issue with the uh, rich, powerful, and out-of-touch people who run that institution. Well, there are some people who who wish that Exxon could change, who who think the logic uh, of of making money is that there's plenty of money to be made in alternative energy, and they wonder why don't the big oil and gas corporations decide that they should take the lead in alternative energy. Does Exxon have to hate solar panels? Well, the answer to that one is actually really interesting, I think. Um, Yes, there's money to be made in the next energy future. People are going to get rich putting up solar panels. But there's not Exxon-scale money to be made. And if you think about it for a minute, you'll realize why. Um, Once you get the solar panels up on the roof, the energy comes for free when the sun rises every morning. Good point. From Exxon's point of view, that's the stupidest business model you could imagine. (laughs) They've spent 100 years charging people more every month for what they get. So they've tried everything they can to beat back the rise of renewable energy, they and the utilities. Eventually, they're going to lose. The price of wind and sun just keeps dropping and dropping and dropping and dropping. It's now the cheapest way to generate an electron in the world. And that's eroding the fossil fuel company's power slowly. The trouble is slowly, because we need it now to go quickly. Uh, Fifty years from now, we're going to run the world on sun and wind. The question is, is it going to be a completely broken world that we're running on sun and wind, or will we have made the transition in time to avert the absolute worst possible outcomes? We're already going to be in some trouble. There's no stopping global warming. That's not one of the options on the menu, but there may be still some opportunity to slow it down. So let's talk, for as our last topic here, about how to find the right balance between Uh, fear and hope. I know from everything you've said, everything you've written, you are not optimistic about the human game, but you do have reasons for hope. Uh, How do you balance these? Well, I mean, 
I think that uh, that you've got to get up and fight every morning. And I think the fact that there is this movement building is a very, very good sign. It's what I and others have worked hard for many years to build, and now we see it starting to come true. Um, and it's you know very good to see. I worry that we waited too long to get started sometimes, and uh, that the momentum of climate change is very, very grave indeed. Um, but at least we're starting to engage the question now. Um, um, and what option does one have but to hope and to work hard uh, until the scientists tell us that there's no point in it anymore? And uh, we're not at that point yet. Uh, the best science indicates we have a window, albeit a fairly narrow one that's clearly closing rapidly, to still make some fundamental change. The IPCC in its report last September, gave us a 12, now 11-year timeline to have made fundamental transformations. That's why we've got no more presidential elections to waste and uh, you know, n no more congressional cycles to waste and no more anything to waste. From now on in, we better be making the right decisions in sharp time. And, you know, some places are beginning to. New York City just in the last days passed the Green Deal for New York, a really ambitious piece of climate legislation in the world's financial capital. That's a good sign about where the smart money is starting to point. Let's hope we can make it happen fast enough. And we do have models of how to, how to bring big changes when the obstacles seem tremendous in the nonviolent protest movements of the 20th century. That's right. That's the other great technology along with solar panels. And so we are, you know, we're very, that's the greatest tool that we have. Our job is to change the zeitgeist. The job of the fossil fuel industry is to keep everybody thinking that burning rocks from underground is the normal and obvious way to proceed. And our job is to make it so that people think it's not the obvious way to proceed, that there is a, a clear better alternative and that we can seize it and seize it fast. You've got to get up and fight every morning to change the zeitgeist. We're capable of acting together to do remarkable things. That's what Bill McKibben says in his new book, Falter, Has the Human Game Begun to Play Itself Out? It's a terrific book. Bill, thanks for everything you do, and thanks for talking Back with at us. You. Back at you, brother. We'll look forward to the next time. Take care. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Paris isn't the only place where a cathedral of Notre Dame is in ruins and awaiting rebuilding. There's another Notre Dame in Haiti, destroyed in the earthquake of 2010. Amy Willens has been thinking about that. She's been reporting on Haiti for 30 years, most recently in her award-winning book, Farewell, Fred Voodoo. She was also a Jerusalem correspondent for The New Yorker, and she's a longtime contributing editor at The Nation. Amy, welcome back. Thank you, Joe. Remind us, first of all, why we care about Haiti. All of us should care about Haiti because it was the first black republic ever established on the globe. 
It had the only successful slave revolution, which turned into a political entity in the end, the Republic of Haiti. And and after that, after 1804, when Haiti declared its independence, France required that Haiti pay an indemnity, reparations. For what? Well, it's a, it's a really interesting thing. Usually the victor in a war, which was Haiti, demands reparations or indemnities or tribute from the loser nation. But in this case, France, the loser nation, demanded money from Haiti for many things, for its loss of property during the revolution, uh, the property being Haitian slaves, i.e. the people who won the revolution, but also uh, plantations, uh, produce, etc. And the Haitians were willing to pay because they had just come through a very long war of attrition, and I think they didn't feel at the time that they were capable of waging another one. France was then threatening to re-enslave the Haitians to also make Haiti a pariah nation in terms of trade and the world economy. France required that Haiti pay how much? Well, over more than a century, Haiti paid what would be, in today's dollars, about $21 billion. And when did they finish their reparations? I think it was 1948. So France is rich, Haiti is poor. Is there a relationship between these two facts? I'm just laughing to myself because, of course, those reparations, at the time when it was basically a baby nation, Haiti, it was just begun. And then these things were slapped on them, which they really had to pay. They were losing money while France was making money from them. And of course, a lot of French wealth was originally based on this incredibly productive work camp that was Haiti, this slave economy where they worked their slaves to death for the most part and just took the incredible profits from the sugar economy there. So let's talk about the ruined Cathedral of Notre Dame in Haiti. What did it look like? What does it look like now? It looked like it was made out of confectioner's sugar. And the way it looks now, you think it might have been. It was made out of reinforced concrete, but you would never have thought something so soundingly brutalist would have been turned into this lacy beautiful, soaring, very European with a slightly Caribbean touch to it. Cathedral that was the highest building in Port-au-Prince forever and ever, really, until the day it fell, I think. It was was the second highest building by then. And what does it look like now? It's skeletal remains with, uh, you can see still the rosette windows. It was designed by a French architect, um, and they started building in 1883. So it has some of that era in its construction and many, many rosette windows. But it's, it's basically fell to the ground. There are a couple of walls remaining. We're talking now about the possibility of rebuilding this ruined Notre Dame. Do Haitians really want a cathedral? Isn't this building more about the power of Frenchness and the power of the Catholic Church? What what does it mean to them? It's funny because, of course, as a symbol, it was built by the Catholic Church with Catholic Church and uh, congregational monies when Haitians had some money to give for that kind of a cause. So it was a very kind of French church, but it was inhabited by the Haitian people of Port-au-Prince, and it was an important 
place. They always say about Haitians that they're 100% voodoo and 99% Catholic. And that's really true. There's a lot of still uh, belief in the voodoo pantheon. But still, people go to Catholic Church for baptism and First Communion and for Mass often. It's a fairly religious community still. Um, And I think for the Catholic Church now in Haiti, it's besieged by Protestant missionaries, most of them from the United States, and by the, the Mormons also have made great inroads, and they build churches like crazy. There are churches dotting the Haitian countryside, little tiny things built by these missionaries. And I think the Catholic Church feels that one of the things it can do is have one of these giant monuments to itself. And it it was behind, in part, the idea of rebuilding this Notre Dame. And this Notre Dame in Port-au-Prince is not just a place where the Catholic Church celebrates its own power. It's played a different kind of political role at times. It was a community gathering place. So it was a place for Catholic ritual. But also it played a role in the 1980s when liberation theology was so important. It played a role as a sort of a place where people who believed in the small church, the little church, as it was called in Haiti, which was the Church of Liberation Theology, would go to protest the the role of the Catholic Church in supporting the government and the elite. In the mid-1980s, when the Duvalier regime had just fallen and everything was very confused and Father Jean-Bertrand Aristide was rising up uh, as a political figure, the Catholic Church decided it had had enough of him, and they decided to move him from his inner-city parish to a more outlying place. And the young people who supported him said, ah, no, we're not having this. And they occupied the cathedral. They marched in and they sat down right in front of the altar and they said, we're having a hunger strike. A hunger strike? Unheard of in Haiti. Because hunger in Haiti is the biggest enemy. Anytime you can eat, you eat. You don't say, no, I'm foregoing food for a cause. It just doesn't happen. So it was a very major, incredible thing. And then... The church began to fill up and fill up and fill up. I was there. And eventually the hierarchy caved into these young people and the really large crowds who had gathered in the cathedral. And at the end, Aristide appeared, this teeny little person with big glasses on and his white robes. And he escorted the young people out and he got to stay in his parish for a while. All was not bliss after, but it was still a very big moment. And what would it mean today in Haiti to rebuild this place? You know, I don't know. There could be all sorts of ways to deal with the area that would be maybe more Haitian to my mind than a big Catholic cathedral. There's already a little transitory cathedral, they call it, which is um, a small building built near the ruins of the old cathedral. So that's a place for the Catholics to go if they want. But, you know, Haitians are really, they love the the pomp and circumstance of the cathedral. They're used to it. It was their place. They remember it. It's in the national memory. And I think it would serve just as rebuilding a national palace, even though Duvalier's, you know, reigned from there. It means something to have your national symbols, especially for this country that's such a special nation. So I think there could be something done. And in fact, there have been some 
attempts to do something to rebuild this this uh, monument. Before we talk about the proposals, I want to ask, doesn't Haiti have bigger problems than rebuilding this French Gothic cathedral? Yes, as I've uh, been discussing recently, it has a lot more problems that need um, money flowing toward them than the building of a cathedral, for instance. Basic nutrition, health care, energy infrastructure, infrastructure itself, sanitation, uh, security, personal security in the street, law and order in, administered in a decent way or just administered. I mean, there's nothing happening now. And so when I'm talking about security, the situation in the Haitian street right now is very dangerous. There's a lot with the vacuum in power, although there is a president, not much is done by the president. And so there's this big vacuum of power and there the narco gangs and and just little gangs uh, have walked into this space and there's a lot of killing going on in the streets when there are protests against the Haitian government because there's no gas in Haiti anymore. They fire sometimes on the, the people who are protesting. There have been, I think, the that Human Rights Watch is asking for the Haitian government to explain the 30 deaths in the crowd, uh, in the crowds of protesters in recent months. In addition, when there's no gas... You can't get to a hospital. You can't get to a job if you're lucky enough to have a job. You can't get to the market to buy food. So everything has come to kind of a grinding halt there. So, yeah, sure, of course, Haiti has bigger problems than rebuilding the cathedral. So tell us about the proposals for a new Notre Dame in Haiti. In 2012, this Miami, uh, impressive Miami kind of entrepreneur uh, combined with the person who was the bishop of Port, the Archbishop of Port-au-Prince at the time, and the two of them got together and they organized a competition for uh, a design for a new cathedral. And that competition was won by a Puerto Rican group run by a man, an architect named Segundo Cardona. And he and his team made a beautiful design. Uh, that incorporates the old parts of the church that are still standing and the idea of the old church while being a kind of a more broad meeting place, too. And then uh, Senor Cardona came to Haiti two years later to show the beautiful model they had built for the cathedral, and he arrives. And first of all, the Haitian customs won't let the church in, the little church, the model. And then when he finally manages to, like, pull it from the hands of customs and get into town. He goes to this transitory cathedral and he's like, oh my gosh, they've kind of built something already. I'll never, I'll never get this built. And he was so disheartened. And I do think that often in Haiti, something that's built as transitory ends up being final because it was cheaper, easier, and there it is. And then who's going to have the energy and the fundraising ability to build a new one. And meanwhile, the uh, archbishop who wanted the new cathedral and the Miami entrepreneur who was pushing for it have both died. What's the status today of this new cathedral? Have they raised some of the money? Have they started to break ground? Not a single penny (laughs) has been raised since the uh, monies were dispersed for the design, and uh, no ground has been broken, although you wouldn't. No, no ground has been broken since the ground around the cathedral is still so broken from the earthquake. Well, let's go back to the indemnity France required that Haiti pay in exchange for getting recognition of its independence. 
you have a modest proposal about paying for the rebuilding of the ruined Cathedral of Notre Dame in Haiti. From the um, 19th to the 20th century, France demanded that Haiti pay this huge indemnity or reparation to France of $21 billion. And my modest proposal is to take some of that back in some form for Haiti to rebuild the cathedral, among other things. But one of the interesting things is that these big billionaires in France have offered so much money to rebuild Notre-Dame de Paris, and uh, they've offered an awful lot of money, maybe some of that, which, you know, all French money sort of goes back to the days of the colony, could go to Haiti instead of just to this spire for Notre-Dame. France should help pay for the rebuilding of the Notre-Dame Cathedral in Haiti as partial reparations for the indemnity they forced Haiti to pay for its independence. Amy Willens wrote about rebuilding the Haitian Notre-Dame for the Atlantic.com. It's a terrific piece. Thank you, Amy. Thanks. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank our engineer, D'Angelo Jones, and our producer, Renee Reynolds. As always, we thank Ry Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Hey, Trump Watchers, if you missed part of the show or of any of our recent shows, listen online anytime you want to trumpwatchpodcast.com. Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on the same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.